0: And we're going to be looking at a a well-known portion of Scripture in in Ephesians chapter 6. And it is a topic that I want to say has helped me both personally and has helped me tremendously when it comes to actually ministering to people. Um, In in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, and we've been kind of journeying through that over the last number of weeks, through chapter 5 of Ephesians and now into chapter 6, Of Ephesians, Paul is addressing a topic that we must see in its context. And very often, we look at this context, at this portion of Scripture, all on its own. But the context he's been talking, speaking into, is the context of being filled with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter five, he speaks about the fact that we must be filled, constantly being filled with the Spirit. But he says the Spirit-filled life is meant to filter through into the way that we live. And just, I mean, you all know this, but let me highlight it again this morning. The Spirit-filled life isn't a nice feeling that you get. The spiritful life actually affects different things uh, in, in terms of lifestyle. So it affects the way we worship. The spiritful life, one of the very first things speaks, Paul speaks about is speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He's talking about worship. He, he's talk, he talks about the spirit for life filtering through into our relationships with one another. It says, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. It filters through into people's marriages. It speaks about the husband-wife relationship uh, in Ephesians chapter 5. It speaks about family life. It talks about the relationship between parents and children, children and parents. It filters into the way that we conduct ourselves at work. Every area of our lives is affected when we talk about being spiritual. At fault. But then Paul goes on to talk about the fact that Christians, and I want to emphasize that word, are involved in what he calls a spiritual battle. You're familiar with the terminology spiritual warfare. And, um, and, and I remember the very first time I encountered this spiritual battle or the spiritual warfare in my own life. Now, I'd heard many sermons on Ephesians chapter 6. I'd heard about the fact that we've got an enemy called the devil. I'd heard about all of those things, but it wasn't altogether real for me until one day, and this wasn't at this church, so just to clarify, one day what happened, we discovered one of the youth. In our youth group had previously been involved in the occult, had started attending church had had become part of the church had had uh, committed his, he had committed his life to the Lord, he had been baptized, he was doing all the things that Christian young people get involved in and i 'll never forget the one day we discovered as we were speaking that the enemy still had a hold in his life, and for the very first time i personally encountered what the disciples of Jesus had encountered many times before, a manifestation of the enemy in somebody's life. Now, Knowing what I do today about this subject, it's helped me in a whole lot of different areas. It's helped me, first of all, to pray differently. Being aware of the fact that we're in a spiritual battle, you pray differently when you know that. It's helped me to minister to people differently because I know that what's happening in their lives can't just always be related to things in the natural We often think about, well, there's circumstances going on. There are things just happening around me. And maybe if we change the circumstances, things will change. But when that's the enemy, a change of circumstances isn't going to help. It might take some pressure off you. It's helped me to deal with stuff in my own life differently. So when I see things going on and happening in my own life, in my thought life, in my attitudes, it's helped me to deal with that differently too. To understand, as I've said, what's going on in other people's lives. But most of all, what's been so great for me is to see God's people getting set free. It is an amazing thing to see a person free for where the enemies had a stronghold or a foothold um, in somebody's life. Now, some of the most helpful information we can read about this spiritual battle, it's not the only place it appears in the Bible, but it's definitely uh, in Ephesians chapter 6. And Mark, if you can put that up uh, for me. Paul says finally, and he's coming now to the end of this letter to the church in Ephesus, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. And then there are a number of times he says this. This is the doing part of this this portion of scripture. He says, put on. It it is something that we need to do. We need to put on the full armor of God. There is something you and I are supposed to do because there is a spiritual battle on the go. Put on the full armor of God so that you can. And here's the other word I want you to notice, or the other phrase that's going to appear four times take your stand. It repeats that four times. It must be quite important so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Here it is again. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to, here it is again, stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, then again, stand firm then with the belt of truth. Buckled around your waist with a breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert And always keep on praying for all the saints. And I'll stop just there. Now, one of the most important things when we're reading the scripture is to remember Paul is addressing Christians. He's addressing Christians when he speaks about the spiritual battles that are going on in two places in this dark world. So there are spiritual forces in the world today, but then he also says they are in the heavenly realm. So there is a spirit realm, and there's the world in which we live, and he says there is a battle going on. In other words, what I want to say this morning is every Christian has quite a unique perspective of what's happening around them because they know there's a spiritual battle. So we don't just simply look at things and say that's cause and effect. That's just circumstantial in nature. Many other people will. But when we look at life and when we look at the ebb and flow of life, we need to say there is a factor that we need to add into the mix. It's the fact that there's a spiritual battle on the go. In fact, Peter, when he was writing to the believers, and he was talking about this in the context of persecution, he says, be self-controlled and alert for your enemy, the devil, speaking to believers, roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. James puts it slightly differently in James chapter 4 and verse 7. He says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee to you. This is to believers. Or Paul puts it slightly differently when he was writing to the Corinthian church and he was talking about some false apostles that had come amongst them. These were people calling themselves apostles. They were speaking all the right language, but they were agents of darkness. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading. That means to pretend as apostles of Christ and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. So that means we need to say this morning one of the most dangerous things for a believer to do is either ignore or underestimate the enemy. Now, before I get into the specifics of what we've been reading here in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, it'll be helpful to put the spiritual battle into some kind of, of context for us this morning because it's often a bit of a minefield for people. Christians say, well, you know, surely Jesus defeated the enemy at the cross and I'm a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in my life, so I need to know about it. But I'm, I mustn't take too much notice of what, what's going on. There's, there's a context we, we need to put this into. And so what I want to do today is I want to just paint a broad, with broad brushstrokes, three primary areas in which you and I will actually encounter the enemy in our lives. And the first one is in the day-to-day choices that we make. You will encounter the enemy in the day-to-day choices. I will encounter the enemy in the day-to-day choices. And so what Paul is, is explaining over here, there's a very different the definite spiritual content to what's going on in our lives. Let me explain. we go to Acts chapter 5, and yeah, there it is. We've, we've got an, a, a, an example over here where um, what Ananias and Sapphira, it was a couple who's part of the Jerusalem church, they sold their property, and they come and they bring some money for the benevolent fund in the church for the helping of the poor. And when they come and when they bring the money to Peter, Peter, what Peter says is this, and he identifies what's going on in their lives. This is what he says. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to me? No, not lied to me. But in fact, they had lied to him. Peter doesn't say you've lied to me. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. Do you notice that what we are doing in the natural has a spiritual counterpart to it? You can be lying to somebody as a believer. The Bible is saying over there, you're actually lying to the Holy Spirit. when you Very interesting a comment that he makes. And I don't think that, that Peter was saying that Ananias was demon-possessed. People have kind of got some weird ideas about that. But rather in the choice that he made at that moment, he allowed the enemy to trick him. He allowed the enemy to deceive him to the point where he lies to the Holy Spirit when he tries to deceive the leaders in the church. Here's another example in Ephesians chapter 4. Talking about the daily choices, remember? Paul reminds believers that not to give the devil a foothold. Have you read that scripture before? Not to give the devil. That's the word that's used, is the word topos. It means a vantage point. If you want to, uh, for those of you who uh, love uh, war stories and the war and and all of that kind of thing, uh, in the Second World War, the, the, the Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy, and what they did is they established footholds. They established places from which to fight. That's the the picture that's being used over here. And Paul is saying, do not let the sun go down in in your anger, and in so doing, give the devil a place from which to influence your life. He's not talking about you being demon-possessed. He's talking about you giving the enemy a place of influence in your life. And then Paul even goes on to warn Timothy that in in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow... um, Deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. That's talking about the church. It's not talking about unbelievers. He's warning the church. That's what's going to happen. So, so those day-to-day issues, those day-to-day choices. Here's another one which is very seldomly addressed in the church. What people have been exposed to before they come to Christ. What has happened in your life before you came to Christ? What's happened in my life before I came to Christ? And as I've said earlier on, this is often a very unaddressed issue for Christians... What they've been exposed to before they come to Christ. Let me explain what I mean. Before somebody becomes a Christian, before somebody gets saved, the Bible teaches us that Satan has control over their lives. Now, I'm not saying they're demon-possessed. I'm saying that in the bigger scheme of things, our master is not Jesus Christ. Our master is the enemy. Okay? So in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, when Paul is describing salvation, he says this. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. That means dominion means to have control over. And he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. So when Jesus was crucified, I want you to think about this. The price for sin was paid. You're all happy with that? But also he defeated the enemy who was exercising control over people's lives. Now let's look at that in Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. You're all happy with that part. Listen to what he says. Uh, having canceled the written code with its regulations that were, was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And then he goes on to say... And having disarmed powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Do you notice two things happened at the cross? Sin was paid for, and the enemy was defeated. And so often when we have ministry as Christians, we are told about our sins and the price of our sins being paid for. We're told to repent so that we can be free from the power of sin in our lives. How often have you been told to deal with the strongholds in your life that have happened before you got there? Why does the Bible speak about two different things happening if it's not significant for us to know that Jesus broke the power and the authority of the enemy at the cross as well? Now I want to ask you a question. When did Jesus, and this is a question that will help you in your own walk with God. It's a bit of an off-the-beaten-track for the sermon. When did Jesus have victory over the enemy? When it came to Calvary. Did he have victory over the enemy when he was nailed to the cross? Or did he have victory over the enemy when he prayed in the garden? No, but I'm talking specifically about this. Where did Jesus' victory start? It started on his knees in the garden. Do you notice Jesus keeps allowing people to do things to Him? It says He was silent. He allowed people to bring false accusations. He allowed people to beat Him. He allows people to nail Him to the cross. But when He's in the garden, He says, Father, not your will, but... Do you remember what James said? Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let's put that into the garden of Gethsemane scene. Jesus is everything inside of him is crying out, not the cross, not the cross. That's the way I would like it. But he says, I bring my will into submission before the Lord. Father, but your will be done. As it is in heaven, so let it be on earth. Your will be done in my life. And then he says, Father. And you remember, he wrestles. His his sweat becomes like drops of blood. And then after that, he allows the soldiers to take him away. You see, the battle's already won. Having... Defeated, having overcome, having disarmed the principalities and powers. So what does Jesus do when they nail him to the cross? He's showing all of heaven and earth the victory is won. It's done. He demonstrates the victory. And I want to tell you, you know where your victory will come is in the place of prayer. Your victory comes in the place of prayer. But let's just move on because that was a bit of a digression. So, <laughs> so as I was saying at the cross, provision for sin has been made and the enemy's defeated so that the control exercised over people's lives can be broken. Now, we were talking about the whole thing of before you come to Christ. Where are those strongholds? Let me tell you some of them. Other religions. If you've been involved in another religion, let me tell you there's a stronghold from that. Another area, sexual activity before people have got saved. There is often, there is, there is often we will discover, through people's uh, sexual promiscuity, they've opened themselves up to the enemy. Abusive relationships. Some of you have come out of an abusive relationship, family relationship, whatever it is. Involvement in the occult which is the one we think of most of all. A family history of witchcraft. Things like Freemasonry. It goes very deep. Last Sunday afternoon, I was sitting with one of the ladies from our church. She was a practicing Muslim before she became a Christian. And I was very interested, this was before I'd actually prepared this message, and she was saying to us, you know, I came to, when I came to Christ, I was truly born again. Uh, God just, in a wonderful way, transformed my life. But she said, for years afterwards, I kept experiencing this intense spiritual battle. She said, in some cases, it became quite physical. Physical. I was fearful. I could not speak. I was paralyzed sometimes. And she said, in my mind, I would just say the name Jesus, Jesus, Jesus over and over again. And she said, then somebody told me one day about getting delivered. And she said, I went for prayer for deliverance and from that day I've been free. You see, she was involved in another religion. She'd opened her life up to the work of the enemy. And I was very interested in discovering that more and more missionaries on the field are discovering that people that they are ministering to who come to Christ are not really growing significantly in their spiritual life until they first had inner healing and deliverance. It's just what's happening. Things that we're discovering. Now, the third area... And I want to land this now in the passage that we've been reading is what uh, Paul calls and what he says we to be alert to. He says we to be alert to the schemes of the enemy against the believer. Now, when Paul talks about these schemes, he's talking about the different ways or areas in which people find themselves struggling with the believer. Sorry, struggling with the enemy. And, 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 and in other words, what he's saying is the enemy works through the different infrastructures all around us. Now, there are five areas in which we will encounter the schemes of the enemy. And the way that I know that is because of the armor that we are given. So if you look at, if you want to know what's the first part of the armor, can anybody remember? Belt of truth. Thank you, Jan. Yeah, Jan. So if there is the armor is truth, what would you expect is the strategy of the enemy going to be? Lies and deceit. I think we've got it over the issue to be able to see it. So, so the armor tells us where the attack of the enemy is going to be. So, so when we come to the first one, and I've got all of those up there, and, and we'll just talk through those quickly through lies and deception. Now, in John chapter 8 and verse 44, and I haven't got these scriptures up, so if you want to make a note of them, John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus says this about the devil He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is the liar and the father of lies. And when you go back to Genesis chapter 3, do you remember the Genesis 3 account? where where the serpent, now the the enemy has come to Adam and Eve as a serpent, and he says to her, did God really say this is what's going to happen if you eat of that fruit of that particular tree? And what he was suggesting is this, and I want you to, to note this for a minute. He wanted to get Eve to believe she was doing good when in fact she was disobeying God. That make sense to you? He, she, he, he wanted Eve to believe she was doing good when she was disobeying God. That's why we've got in Proverbs five, uh, sorry, 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Now, let me translate that into the context of the series. Brad, house rules. How does somebody get deceived into think they're being spiritual when in fact they are disobeying God. It works like this. You go and you go to a Bible. How many of you attend a Bible study or, or a cell group? Okay, quite a lot of you. Um, you you're at church here this morning. Uh, how many of you pray? How many of you read your Bible? All right, so, so that can, if you say to somebody, well, how's it going with the Lord? Well, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying. My question is, how are you conducting yourself in your home? You see, you can say, well, I'm obeying God, I'm reading the Bible, I'm praying. In fact, you know what? I'm actually involved in ministry in the church. And then you go home and you behave like the devil himself. That's exactly the thing that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about when husbands do not love their wives and wives create and they carry on in their homes and children disobey their parents. He is saying, you think you're obeying God when you are disobeying him. You see, we tend to look at all the things we are doing and overlook the things we are not doing. Does that make sense to you? He's saying this is how the attack of the enemy works itself out. We believe that we are very spiritual when in fact we are being disobedient to the Lord. The second one is watering down what God has said. Now, You remember the second part of the armor is we've got the breastplate of righteousness. And one of the most effective schemes of the enemy in the church today is that we convince ourselves we don't have to get too serious about what God is saying. Let me give you an example. The Bible says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and in so doing, give the devil. How many of you take that seriously? How many of us have let the sun go down on our anger for weeks at a time? What about forgive one another even as I have forgiven you? And how many of us haven't justified unforgiveness in our lives for years because we believed somebody else doesn't deserve to be forgiven? You see what I mean? Or it says, "Get rid of all bitterness." Have you noticed? These are all of the smaller things of life. We're always waiting for that big moment. I'm going to get involved in the occult. Oh no! The devil's much more subtle than that. He will go for those little things we face every day of our lives. And when it speaks about, um, it speaks about watering down what God has said. That's exactly. What are you talking about? The third one is to be complacent about, what God's, about God's call on your life. And I want to... I'm going to say something now. I hope I don't offend too many of you. So be gracious to me. I think this is a brilliant strategy. It's speaking, do you notice that the armor is having your feet fitted with the shoes of readiness of the peace of the gospel, or the gospel of peace? Okay, so, so, so we're going to discover... What the enemy's tactic is by looking at the armor. Okay, So here's the strategy. The strategy is simply this. I'm going to reverse your priorities. What is your priority? The call of God in your life. I'm not talking about the call to be a pastor. The call to serve Him and prioritize Him. In Matthew 6 and verse 33, the Bible says, Seek first the kingdom of God. And all of these things will be added to you. You happy with that scripture? You heard that scripture before? Here's what I want to say about it. When we convince ourselves that God's provision comes through our hard work. Can I say that again? When we convince ourselves or we become convinced that God's provision comes through our hard work, what happens is that money, materialism, and possessions become the gods in our lives. And you know what's happened? We have just become used to that. I'm going to say something this morning. Some of you are more wealthy than you should be. But it's not been through God's provisions. It's being been through your own labor. And what it does, it just keeps hammering you. And it keeps hammering me. You see, God has promised in his word, if you put me first, I will provide all the other things. But when we're living in this materialistic society, we are driven to accumulate these things because that's what everybody does, even in the church. And then we say, that's God's blessing on my life, and it's killing you half the time because you got sucked into the rat race. Friends, remember what I said about watering down the Word of God? He says, If you will put me first, I will supply all of your needs. Either God is going to do it or you're going to do it. You need to choose. But the strategy of the enemy is this He's going to try and reverse your priorities. Because what are you supposed to be doing with your life? You're supposed to be putting God first. You're supposed to be giving yourself first and foremost to the call that he's placed upon your life. And when you reverse the priorities, you know what happens? The enemy's convinced us that what we're doing is right and all the hard work and all we're throwing ourselves into, it's great. You know, that's what God's meant. It's not what God meant for you. That's the lie. And then we wonder why people are on antidepressants and da 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 By the way, I'm not saying that I'm against pills. But some of us need to get our priorities back in order again. The fourth one is a very interesting one. Do You notice that the fourth bit of the armor is the shield of faith. Here's the fourth one, to tempt you and me to stand alone. Do you remember the Roman soldiers' strategy when they were at war? They would form themselves up into this group rectangle. They would hold their um, shields above them, in front of them and around them, and they would become like a skull putt. That's a tortoise. It's protected all around. And what would happen? The enemy would fire the arrows. The Roman soldiers would form up into this, um, I forget forget what the technical name of it is, whatever it is, and you know what happens? The, the, the flaming arrows would hit the shields and they would be safe. Here's the thing. You needed to be with your mates for that to be successful. Here's the big challenge facing believers. We want to go it alone. We've lost, especially in our Western culture, it's all about me and me alone. It's all about what I can do on my own. Do you notice Paul is using a picture to help us understand the spiritual truth over here? That's why the Bible says we are part of a family and part of a body. And the last one is the issue of discouragement. It says the helmet of salvation. And the area we'll face the enemies and the area of discouragement when it comes to our faith. And the reality of this, of the world is this you and I are living in a fallen world. Do you know what we even though we're Christians, things still go wrong. People let us down, we fall into sin, and then the enemy comes along and he said, see, it doesn't work. And there are times when we will be tempted to throw in the towel, to stop persevering, to stop praying, to give up serving, because it gets hard. Jesus always said it was going to be a struggle. We live in a fallen world, even as believers. Now, I want to finish by talking about, we can go to the next slide, I want us to talk and look at the armory. What is the provision God has made for every one of these strategies of the enemy? Now the first one is, if the enemy is going to deceive us, then the belt of truth is to uncover lies and deceit. Right? What, what does that mean? If we're going to put this on, and people like, will how do you put this belt of truth on? Let me suggest to you, it's when you choose to examine what's going on in your life. You see, remember we spoke about the strategy of the enemy with Eve was to convince her of a lie so she would live the lie. How do you combat that? You examine yourselves. You allow what God has said to expose and uncover deception. We ask the Holy Spirit to put His finger on what we need to know so that it can be dealt with and we are able to stand up against the devil's schemes. Friends, may I say to you the word repentance is huge. If we know we're in a battle, and if we know the devil is a liar, how do you stand against it? You examine yourself. David did it. Remember David in Psalm 51. He says, you desire truth in my innermost being. Friends, you know what I've found has been hugely helpful for me, especially when when I'm praying with people who are struggling with this in their lives. All I do is we have a time of prayer, and I say to them, will you ask God to show you why you're struggling? And it's almost instantaneously. They say, yeah, yeah, you know, suddenly this just thought has just come into my mind. I did this, or that happened, or somebody said this. And then they, they want to quickly go on and say, yeah, but that's such a minor. I said, no, it's not a minor thing. If God's revealing it to you, there is a reason. You see, regularly go before the Lord and say, I Open my heart to you, Lord, search me. know me. And I'm not saying you do that because you're so bad, you do that because you are a believer in a spiritual battle. That makes sense? Secondly, the second part of the armor is what's called the breastplate of righteousness. Now, you all know as Christians that a Christian is already righteous because of Christ, right? So he's obviously not talking about that because we'd have put it on. What he says when he he talks about the breastplate of righteousness, he's saying you and I are meant to live righteous lives. That's, That's what he's getting at. And so whenever we become selective with God's word, we start to discover that we fall into the trap of the enemy. But when we start to take God's word seriously in every area of our lives, you suddenly have the upper hand. Let me say this to you this morning. I rebuke that. (laughs) Let me say this this morning. That word obedience is your victory word. It's your victory word, and if something you're struggling with, somebody you something, take it to God. Repent of it. Bring it under the control of the Spirit, but don't let it have victory in your life, because we're meant to live righteous lives. Third one, it's the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. And we counter the attempt of the temptation to become complacent about God's call on our lives by getting back to what God has called us to do. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, put it beautifully. Here it is. Here's your call, if you're a believer. As you go, preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons freely as you've received, so freely give. Guys, that's the thing we were all commissioned to do. It's our priority. It's about putting Christ first in our life. I've been reading a very interesting book. I'm just going to give you a comment for those that it might be meaningful for you. But it's called A, 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 new, a new Christian Manifest. And, and, and the book argues that people on the margins of society are the most open and available to be agents of transformation goes on to say they should be the highest priority for the church. Their calamities should not be interpreted as sorry, their calamities should be interpreted as signs of their high value, the enemies attacking them, because if they are strong and healthy, they will storm the gates of hell as no one else can. Have you noticed Jesus started by the good news to the? the marginalized, he knew where the army would be built. He understood that the downtrodden and the people in whose lives the enemy had come to destroy, he said if they hear the good news, they will rise up an army because they know what it means to be beaten up by the enemy. And when they are free and when they hear the good news and when they receive Christ and they're empowered of the Spirit, they say, I will not let that happen to anybody else. And they become an army and they said, we will storm the gates of hell. Interesting comment. Fourthly, the shield of faith. Remember we spoke about going it alone? The shield of faith is simply this, we need one another. We need one another. I need you, you need me. We need one another's prayers. We need to carry one another's burdens. We need to encourage one another. We need to stand together. We need to support one another. We need to minister to one another. May I say this this morning, and I say this carefully as a preacher. You don't come to church just for sermons. You come to the church for one another. We are here to minister to one another. Through the gifts God has given you. By praying for one another. By listening to one another. By carrying each other's burdens. Friends, that's church. The message is just to give you the instruction to do that. And I think tragically... Over years, church has become a little bit about we've come to sing and we've come to listen to God's Word. And I'm not saying that's not important, but it's way, way more than that. If we're going to overcome our spiritual enemy, we've got to stand together. Then the helmet of salvation for discouragement. What I've realized in preparing this message, that as the Western church, we are very poorly prepared for this battle. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, do not be ashamed of joining me in persecution. It's like, called it out. And, and you know what happened? The, in the early church, people would had this drilled into them. You may face persecution, but Jesus Christ is coming again as the victor. And, friends, we've become very now focused. But may I say to you, there is coming a day when Satan will be bound and he will be cast into the pit for all of eternity and the lion will die down with the lamb and there will be no more injustice and there will be no more sin and there will be no more crying and there will be no more suffering and God will be with his people. Amen. And friends, that's got to be finally what we live for. You see, what do you do? When discouragement comes your way, you remember you've got a future in Christ. In Christ. And what about the part that says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God and prayer? Seems like I left that out, doesn't it? But I'll tell you where it fits in. It fits in here. Even though Satan is active, even though he has these schemes, God's intention is that you and I will take ground from the enemy. We will advance through the authority of God's Word and through prayer. Friends, God's Word has authority over the enemy. And when you face him, you face it by saying, face him by saying, it is written. When there's a stronghold, when there's a battle, when you are tempted, when things get turned upside down in your life, you say, it is written. It is written, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and these things will be added to you. It is written, do not be anxious. It is written, do not worry. It is written that the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. It is written, friends. And then we take that into into the place of prayer. You see, Jesus, when he was with his disciples in Matthew chapter 60, said this to them, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. And you know the picture. I think I've told you before. It is not the picture of the church trying to defend itself. It is the picture of the church advancing one life at a time and saying, we are taking ground. From the enemy. One preacher I was listening to this week. Put it like this. He said there are three ways. In which the enemy is being defeated at the moment. Number one. At the cross. He publicly. Did it publicly. Disarmed principalities and powers. At the cross was the first step. The second step is through the church. It's our prayer is. Your kingdom come. And your will be done. And we take the message of the gospel of the kingdom. And we take ground from the enemy one life at a time. And the third part is when he comes back again. And it will be all over. But I want to tell you the picture is of a church advancing. Knowing we're in a spiritual battle. Confident in the armor of God taking the sword of the Spirit, taking prayer, and we're advancing one life at a time, and we are saying this, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Amen. I'll share that with you today. Because I want us to regularly go into the armory. I want us to examine ourselves. I want us to see and ask ourselves, and these are things you need to ask yourself. Have my priorities become upside down priorities? Have I tried to go it on my own? Am I being deceived into that? Am I I still taking God's word seriously? Or could it be that I'm in a place where I've started to become a little bit selective because there's something going on in my life I don't know that I really want to change there? But you see, we're in a spiritual battle and we are meant to win. We are meant to win. Because of the cross. And because of the armor. And because of what Christ has done. Now won't you stand as we close in prayer? I just want to remind you of two things this morning. One is this. Where Jesus on his knees said, "Father, not my will, but your will be done." And I will tell you something from the life of Jesus. The victory is won in the place of prayer, not afterwards. You win the victory, then you live the victory. And sometimes those are going to be agonizing prayers. Jesus said to his disciples, watch and pray that you do not fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Guard your time of prayer. Guard it. It's a place of incredible victory. And the second one is this. I feel this is quite an important one for us. Be aware of the gods of the age that you live in. My sense coming away from this is that one of the gods that we will struggle with is materialism. I believe it's something very powerful. And I was speaking to a missionary the other day who said to me, it's interesting when you go from this country to another one, you immediately become aware of the darkness. And then he made this comment, and so often we've adjusted ourselves to our own darkness that we no longer alert to it. Be careful of the idols. Be careful of the gods. Be careful of the things that want to draw us in and paralyze us in our walk with God. And so I want to pray over you this morning. The victory... Of the Spirit of the Lord. I want to pray this that you would know there was a victory at Calvary, and I pray that that the Spirit would impress this on your heart. I pray that you would know that as the church we are meant to be taking ground from the enemy, not giving ground. And I pray this that God will impress this on your heart. But most of all, I pray for you that you will know you've got a future in Christ. There is a victory. He is coming again. And when he comes again, it will all be over. And when you see the reward, you will say, thank you, Jesus. It was all worth it. And I pray that over you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I think it was i think it was fine john i thought it was a lovely message guys thank you so much for joining us this morning have a lovely rest of the week remember we'll be back on friday for a good friday service and then again sunday morning for those of you who'd like to double up your church question for the week i look forward